Hey there, you're listening to the Sports Coaching Podcast with me, Sam Omshaw. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. Whether this is your first time listening or if you have been a regular fan of the podcast for the last eight months, we thank you so much for taking the time to check out our platform and listen to us today. The Sports Coaching Podcast with Sam Holmshaw. Okay, welcome back to the latest episode of the Sports Coaching Podcast with me, Sam Holmshaw. And we've got a very, very, very special episode collaboration uh, today, which we're going to talk about just in a second. But first, let me introduce my special guest for this episode, Mr. Michael Wright. Michael, how are you doing? Yeah, all good. Thank you, Sam. And nice for us to be able to eventually get this in the diary. I know, obviously, we've been talking back and forth for the last year or so, just giving each other's tips and advice and stuff. So it's nice to be able to get this one actually in the diary to uh, record. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Like you say, it has been, has been a, a long time, hasn't it, since we had that initial phone call giving tips and advice and everything. Uh, quite quite surreal, really, where we think we're, we're both we are uh, at the minute. But anyway, I mean... Michael, how's, how's everything been in COVID for you? Managed to, to get through it, keep busy, keep occupied? Yeah, I've been pretty lucky, if I'm honest. In, in the house, it's just kind of me, the wife and the dog for the most part, which makes life a little bit easier, um, apart from when I'm trying to record my podcast with the dog barking occasionally, um, which you might be able to hear. But no, we've been quite fortunate, as I said. The podcast I've done over the last year and kind of been a long-term project, so I've been able to do that. Um and then work has kept me busy, um, which has been good, trying to engage the players online um, and setting up their practice at home, etc. So that's something I've been able to do kind of in and around all the craziness, which has kept me a little bit sane. Yeah, fantastic. Certainly, certainly relate to that, especially with the dog barking as well. A common common theme of my podcast. But uh, fantastic. Well, we, we know we've, we've done this little collaboration uh, and we've decided that we're going to uh basically introduce ourselves and each other's platform so so you're going first michael so i guess for all my listeners who uh, might have seen the the podcast advertised on a few of my uh, social media channels the, the last couple of weeks or so uh, it would be great if you could tell us all about your coaching background i guess where the journey started and what's led you to where you are today yeah so <clears throat> it probably started for me coaching whilst i was playing um so I actually played for QPR for five years from 13s through to 18s. Um, got released, as a lot of people do, at that 18s band going for your pro contract. But within that, you had to complete your level two in coaching. So I did a kind of, um, for a family friend, went and did some coaching just for their local team, etc. And really enjoyed it. Um, kind of following in my dad's footsteps at the time. He was a bit of a coach and kind of jumped on that bandwagon. Um after getting released, I went down to Bath and played and got into community coaching, etc. And that's probably where I really found kind of my my passion for it, if you like. So I ended up um, working for Team Bath, the University of Bath, the first team down there, which is quite a recognised university programme. Um, and it's quite a historical thing in terms of them, you know, getting into the FA Cup and progressing through the leads, uh, leagues, etc., um, and based out of there, there's also a, a Southampton Academy, which I was fortunate enough to get involved with. And that's kind of where I've been for the last 10 years, or almost 10 years now, in terms of coaching um, within that Southampton setup. Um, 
and obviously kind of one of the most well-renowned uh, academies in the country in terms of producing players and the thoughtfulness and care that goes into those players. So I've been really fortunate with my education in terms of um, falling into that and the CPD opportunities and the, the players we get to work with, facilities, etc. Um, I've done a couple of other roles in around that, but that's pretty much where I am today. And I actually started a new role two weeks ago within the recruitment department for Southampton. So a little bit of a change up for myself, which will be interesting. But yeah, in, in summary, that's kind of where I am. Started when I'm playing and then went through University at Bath or Team Bath. And then just been really fortunate to um, work at the Southampton Academy and travel you know, internationally with our games programme, which has been brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. I mean... First question I've got to ask you, I mean, you know, tell us more about the Southampton Academy. It's something that's always piqued my interest, just the continuation of the players that seem to come through there. I mean, what is it about that academy that just makes it so much different or or maybe leads to more success with players coming through the age ranks there into the first team? So I'd love to be able to say I could give everyone a massive golden nugget. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. I think the, the honest answer is there's a pathway. There's a pathway that the players, you know, within the setup can see. Um, and I think that's one of the big things in terms of at our club, you know, that if you're progressing well and um, you're getting support from both coaches and, and family, etc., and you're working really hard, there is a pathway for you into that first team environment, whereas that can be challenging in, in different environments. If we look abroad, you look at your Juventus or your Inter Milan's, etc., the scope of players they're able to bring in, um, you know, the money they're able to spend, the, the players nationwide they're able to recruit makes it more challenging. Whereas at Southampton, the location probably helps in terms of clubs within the region isn't as dense as somewhere like London. Um, and just the historical thing of, of doing that. Um, and in and around that, listen, there's a lot of good people at Southampton um, who work incredibly hard to support these players. And we always say that it's, it's a, players journey and we're there to facilitate that so from our perspective we support the players and in their journey and look at it on a holistic level to support them in their mm -hmm. development so been really fortunate in that is this club that I've been in and um, yeah ever thankful that I, I found that and that was a way that I was brought up to coach yeah yeah I mean great insight really uh, re really fascinating actually that you know, really, it's just quite a simple answer, really, in, in terms of the values of the club and I guess what, you know, pulling the players there, which, which you know, I think is more around in academies now, maybe it wasn't 10, 20 years ago. So, so yeah, really interesting. And, and I mean, another question I've got, actually, obviously, you mentioned that yeah, your dad were a coach. Same for me. That's actually how I got into coaching. So, you know, a family affair you know, was always something that had you interest, even when you were a player or just kind not, of... Be honest, not really. I just love playing. For me, I love playing. I played all sports, was massive on the multi-sports and stuff. Um, so I kind of, my dad fell into it because he had no other choice. There was no one else to take us. Um, so it was either take us or us not play, which obviously wasn't allowed us to do. So for me, it was just um, a case of I wanted to play. Obviously, I was fortunate enough to the standard that I got to. Um, and, and he was really supportive within that. And I think ultimately if you stop playing you probably want to do something that's as closely related to it as possible um and coaching is probably the easiest step that a lot of people take so i know the phrase if you can't do then teach i wouldn't necessarily agree with that all the time i don't think that's necessarily the case but yeah for me it was more of a 
um, I really enjoyed the game, really enjoyed sport, and that was a, a natural progression. I mean, obviously for yourself, you've mentioned there in terms of dad, what's your background and what's your current um, projects, etc. For for my listeners that maybe haven't come across your podcast yet. Well, I mean, you you, you could say similarly within the, the sort of coaching. Um, I actually came up through a, a talent pathway myself, but actually not in football, actually in swimming. So, and and that always seems to shock quite a few people to see in the sort of position I am today within football. Uh, but, you know, very much one of those youngsters that was involved, you know, six, seven times a week training. Uh, I can remember on Sundays getting up at half five to train at half six and, you know, just sort of prolonged periods of travelling to the city of Sheffield and, and swimming for Sheffield. And, you know, you could look back and say great experience. Um, for me, I always kind of just didn't really enjoy that time. I always kind of look back and think, bit of a waste of time. I, I love swimming, absolutely love the sport, really enjoyed it, but uh, wasn't really interested in sort of going into that sort of, you know, elite Olympic Commonwealth sort of route that, you know, I suppose everyone else I was swimming with at the time was probably striving for even at that age. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of my background as an athlete. In terms of how I got into football, uh, my dad, coach, uh, basically, I've got three younger brothers. They were all football mad growing up. I mean, I, I liked football. Probably didn't watch it as much as them. Uh, didn't get into it into a, probably when I was about nine or ten, really. Uh, but, yeah, he, he set up a junior football team. Uh, so, for me, that was kind of like having our own club going and, and watching. And I'd never really seen junior football or what, what it was about, really. So, you know, being 11, 12, going and watching, uh, you know, almost like having the best seat in the house, really. I can remember sometimes actually being on the touchline with my dad and, and watching the team. And it was absolutely brilliant. Um, so that, that's kind of how I got into football. So a very different route, uh, you know, never really, you know, wasn't a good player, obviously, you know, I, I was a decent player for the time I started. Uh, but, you know, of course, all sort of recreational playing after school, uh, all that sort of stuff. And then eventually joined a junior football team myself. Um, when I got to 16, I found it really difficult playing in a junior football team and it was probably because of my sort of mindset as a swimmer when I was a swimmer sort of coming up I guess the pressurized environment it was all about winning it's all about competing all about being the best then you're playing at 16 in a junior football team and these lads were you know more bothered about talking about girls at school or you know that sort of stuff and I'm just there like well, hang on a minute we've got to prepare properly we've got to get here on time we've got to train we've got to warm up you know we've got to have good team talk be mentally ready to play and I can remember, like, we would lose games. And I'd go home and I'd, you know, be in my room and it'd, it'd really affect me. And all them other lads, they just kind of, you know, for, you know, didn't have that mindset, of course, sort of being in that context. So at 16, I just thought, well, this is a waste of time. This is a waste of time. I really, you know, I'm interested in coaching. I've seen my dad do it for, for years. So, you know, I quite fancy jumping into it. And that's kind of how it all started for me. Spent two or three years... Uh, coaching under my dad, which was a sort of really great introduction, really into the coaching world. I mean, quite uh, shocking, really, when you've sort of come from an individual sport and then suddenly you're thrown into this team sport and you're, you know, giving feedback to these youngsters and, you know, delivering sessions and all that sort of stuff. Uh, then got to 18, given the chance to manage my own team, which looking back probably came quite early, but, you know, absolutely fantastic experience and, and sort of the memories and, and the relationships we had with them youngsters under 11s at the time was was fantastic. Then decided to go to uni because I'd suddenly gone, this is, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm 
you know, very passionate about football now, very passionate about coaching and had had three fantastic years up there uh, with a sort of range of experience as well. Actually did some volleyball coaching, uh, you know, also did a bit of time as a surfer growing up. So managed to join a surf team and do some bit of coaching within surfing, which was uh, an, an interesting experience, should we say. Uh, and then got to the sort of conclusion of that 2019 and thought, well, you know, I actually really enjoy the the sort of uh, academia, uh, academia side of, of sports coaching, you know, concepts about uh, how people learn, the sort of psychology, uh, you know, types of practice and how that affects uh, how, you know, players learn, develop, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. So decided to get into a master's degree, which, you know, approaching the, the final few months of that and, and getting on well with the, uh, the dissertation process. Uh, and then, you know, earlier this year, got offered the chance to become the first team manager of an amateur football club up in Leeds, uh, uh, sorry, the, the women's first team manager uh, called Oakley Town, which is a very nice area up in Yorkshire. And yeah, managing the women's section, we've, uh, we've, we've really enjoyed that, although that's been quite a challenging time, sort of, you know, three months in and we've only had two sessions with, with a lockdown and everything, but, um, you know, absolutely loving that. So, I suppose in a nutshell, that's that's probably my journey from being a swimmer to, to now being a football manager. The Sports Coaching Podcast with Sam Holmshaw. I think one thing you've you've alluded to there is really interesting is the dynamic of going from an individual based sport into a team one. Um, is there any learnings you've taken from your swimming background or your swimming experiences and how you were dealt with? Um, into the group coaching either in a positive or negative way yeah massively i think the biggest one was not having everything on your shoulders you know when when it was a swimmer and you didn't perform well you know if you didn't if you didn't race well well it's all down to you so you feel that so i think sort of going back to when i first started playing football in this sort of junior team that was more about having fun for them other lads if we lost i probably didn't feel the team lost. I probably felt I'd lost, or it was my down to my individual performance, or you know, sort of taking so everyone else's feeling of losing and sort of bringing it up on myself, and and that was a, a big thing I actually took into uh, football coaching. That you know, sort of idea of you know, we're, we're together, we're a team. You know, we sort of work together. We're all one when we're on this field, and you know, it's a sort of joint responsibility rather than uh, you know one or to you know really feeling that weight upon their shoulders um you know that was a big thing i think another thing actually was uh sort of the concept of life skills as well you know i've worked in various sort of youth talent uh you know academies uh, development settings i've worked for junior clubs you know i've worked in a load of other sports and then you know now working at a first team environment and a big thing for me as a swimmer was there was never really any investment into us sort of like you know things like confidence communication skills leadership uh you know teamwork we, we never really had that it was all about us you know finishing first at a swimming race which when you look back you know kind of silly really to think that maybe there was probably two of us out of a group of 20 that have actually gone on to achieve something within elite swimming so for me sort of coming into football even at 16 that was something i was very aware of you know uh, encouraging players to sort of speak amongst themselves and, you know, not fear that and try and develop the sort of leadership communication skills. And even now, you know, up at Oakley Town and, and even with, the, you know, some of the coaches I've got, uh, you know, one of the things I encouraged them to do and they didn't like the idea of it at first, but was delivering sort of online sessions with the players and, 
you know, I think we just mentioned off air, I got a, a two or three of them decided to do a couple of uh, psychological based sessions talking about things like self-confidence or self-talk, you know, in front of 20 players. And that's quite nerve wracking when you're a sort of student coach coming through 18, 19, 20. But, you know, for me, I'm always thinking, how can we help these guys so that when they leave and maybe don't stay in coaching or they do, they're taking that into their future. So two, two of the big things for me there, really. Yeah, I think something I've alluded to a lot in the podcast and similar to what you're saying there, I think the kind of being chucked into different environments as a coach is massive. Uh, I've got a similar background to you when I said the community-based stuff. It wasn't just football. No, I'd be taking volleyball, netball, hockey, long jump, high jump, athletics, strength conditioning. And that probably set me up very well in terms of like being able to adapt. And I think that is one of the things in coaching you have to be able to do. It's very rare where you plan a session for 12 players and 12 players turn up. So that ability to adapt is a, is a massive one. And also, and I, I imagine you found this um, as much as I have, is we ask the players to be uncomfortable a lot in a lot of the things we're doing. But how often as a coach are you willing to be uncomfortable? So for this, for me, when we started or when I started, really hard doing the, the podcast and asking difficult questions, um, speaking to different people, reaching out over social media to try and get guests, promoting it, editing it, really tough, uncomfortable at points, making mistakes and looking like an idiot. But it allows you to reflect better to what you're putting your kids through or players through. And actually, if you're asking them to stand up in a situation and be uncomfortable how often and how regularly are you willing to do that to show them actually that growth that being uncomfortable is where the growth happens yeah. um, and I think if you can allude that to the players that actually you know that's really powerful in terms of them seeing that you're willing to do the same thing and you're willing to practice what you preach yeah 100% I mean it's that saying isn't it of you know not say as I do you know sort of do yeah sorry not do what I say say as I do uh you know, 100% with that. And that's something I massively learned. And, you know, by the way, exactly the same experiences for me, you know, putting yourself out on a podcast where you're sort of open to critics, really, aren't you? Uh, you know, and what people think and, you know, very much out of my comfort zone as well. And probably took me a good two or three series to actually feel comfortable now, sort of sat, you know, talking to you with this, you know, on air sign behind me and, and actually feeling confident in what you're saying and, and knowing what you're talking about. I mean, but, but you're dead right, you know. I think that's something I learned quite early on. I were asking players to, you know, do certain things. And, you know, I, you could just sort of tell they're, they're looking at you and thinking, but would you do that? And I always found that, I guess, when I've sort of changed that to become sort of proacting the sort of behaviours, if you like, or these life skills that I want my players to develop, it does engage more buying because they go, well, you know what, the gaffer's doing it, you know. That, that that's brilliant so he he clearly shows that we're, we're sort of in this together and it's all about us developing as people you know continually rather than you know well I'm not really willing to you know do this online presentation but you know you can do it because I know that's going to be good for you you know people don't really buy in like that do you like you say whether that's with your kids or your adults no and I had a really good discussion with Tanya I think it's, oh, I could be butchering her last name here Tanya Oxtoby, who's the Bristol City women's coach. Uh, she's recently been on maternity leave, but 
um, she was on the A licence and we were discussing and we were talking about centre-halves going into wide areas um, in terms of defending. And she was a defender. And I made a, a, a flippant comment saying I'd hate being out there. As a centre-half, I would have hated to have to go and deal with that. And she goes, me as well, I would have hated it. Um, and she she recollected a situation where she'd asked uh, defenders to go and do the same. And someone has said, you wouldn't want to go out there. You were a centre-half. You wouldn't want to do it. And she was like, that's a really fair point. Yeah. But this is the reason why. And I think sometimes it is alluding to the fact going, you know what? You're right. That would make me uncomfortable as well. However, the reason for it is this, or yeah. I'm going to support you in a different way. Or sometimes, and this is the answer I give to kids a lot when they say to me, can you demo something that I'm ridiculous and making them do or uh, something really challenging? I'll say, you want to be better than I was. Like, you know, I got released at eight years old. It wasn't bad, but you want to be a better player than I was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, give it a go. And if you fail, I'm not going to hammer you for it. Um, which I, I think, you know, if you get those messages across to kids, it, it's, it's a really, really good one. Um, something you mentioned earlier, you linked around a lot around the, the academic side and using academia. And one thing is I've seen you've kind of promoted quite a lot on your... <clears throat> Apologies. Uh, one of the things you promote quite a lot on your, your um, site, etc., is that the game models. So for those people that haven't come across them extensively, do you just want to explain kind of what game models are and how you're using them or how you're providing them for people um, to be able to construct within like a, a team setting or game setting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it, it kind of stems really from, uh, I, I guess, you know, a sort of methodology that uh, I, I think Mourinho, Jose Mourinho, is probably the most well known for it. But quite a few sort of disciples of Mourinho, so you know Villas Boas, uh, Brendan Rodgers, you know all these sort of characters. Uh, but it, it comes from this approach of tactical periodization, which was originally developed by a professor of football, a professor of sports coaching called Victor Frada over in uh, the University of Porto, uh, 1985, I think, when it first came out. And basically, what that says is. Uh, that we shouldn't train the sort of holistic areas of uh, tactical, technical, uh, psychological, uh, social, physical. We shouldn't train those areas separately, specifically within football, uh, you know, because I get a lot of sort of swimming coaches or diving coaches turn around to me and say, well, you know, all about the technical. But specifically within football, uh, that's what sort of this tactical periodization approach argues or this methodology. And the reason for that is it argues that's the case because it suggests that the football game is a tactical game. Uh, so, you know, you've got the, the four moments of the game, attack, defence, your two transitional phases. That That is that is the game of football in its simplest form, uh, regardless if it's that, you know, sort of senior level, junior level, uh, under fives, under tens, under fifteens. You know, it, it's you, if you watch any game of football, you'll see that. Uh, so basically, what Victor Ferrada argued in this tactical periodization approach was, uh, you know, if the game's tactical, why are sort of football training sessions being dominated by technical practice, or why are we going and doing these sort of team bonding sessions around, you know, communication or teamwork or that sort of stuff? He said we have to recognise uh, what every sort of tactical decision entails and what other elements do we need for that so uh, for example I always use the the sort of tactical decision of uh, attempting to score 
So let's say we're attempting to score by uh, getting into, you know, like sort of the, the goal 17, which is, you know, basically just in front of the keeper's area. Uh, there's obviously a tactical decision that comes with that. So, you know, sort of recognising uh, tactically, where do I position? Where, where you know, where, where, am I, where, where am I going to get into this area? You know, when am I going to time my run? Uh, all that sort of stuff. But to do that tactical decision, there has to be a technical element, psychological, social and physical elements that come with that. So a technical element. I need to be able to receive the ball. I need to be able to shoot uh, different types of shooting. You know, I might, uh, you know, need to chest the ball and, and then have, have hit a volley. I might just head the ball straight away. But technically, I need those skills to do that tactical decision. Uh, psychological, so, you know, I need to be confident. Uh, I might need to, you know, have a bit of leadership, uh, you know, game awareness. So I recognise, you know, sort of what's happening in terms of the play and positionally ready to, you know, sort of prime myself to move when that ball's coming in. Uh, sorry, from the cross. Uh, social, like it was communication, you know, am I shouting to my teammates so that ball comes in? Uh, and then physical, obviously, you know, speed, uh, aerobic endurance, you know, am I quick enough to get into that area? Uh, power, strength, holding off my opposition player. And basically what, what tactical periodization argues is that to do that tactical decision, all those other holistic elements have to happen simultaneously. So then when we reflect training, he would argue, why do we do those independently? Context-specific, we can argue, but that, that, that would be the thinking. So essentially where the game model comes in is it basically describes or explains the coach's philosophy. So coach's philosophies these days, you know, particularly in football, what I tend to see tend to be things like, uh, you know, my philosophy is all about possession or my philosophy is long ball or my philosophy is, you know, sort of high press. Uh, the problem with these, in my opinion, is that these are kind of just ideas based on sort of one moment or element of the game. So if we think about the playing philosophy of, you know, I, I like possession based football. Well, that's predominantly when we're in possession or, you know, if we take high press. Well, that's either when we've, you know, immediately just lost the ball and we're pressing high to try and regain it. Or you could also argue high press is, uh, you know, getting yourself high up the pitch in possession. Uh, same with long ball. You know, short passes, getting into the final third very quickly, uh, attempting to score with a short number of passes. But that's when we're attempting to score, really, or when we're in possession. And um, what a game model would, or, or sort of the purpose for the game model, is it sort of questions those ideas and say, well, that's great when you're in that moment of the game. But what do you, when you, you know, you're sort of in possession philosophy, but what are your players doing out of possession then? What are they doing when they're defending? What are they doing when they're trying to regain possession? Uh, you know, your high press, that's great out of possession, but what did he do in possession? So basically what that game model does is, firstly, it kind of dissects that philosophy and the coach, through building their game model, sort of determines what they want the player to do in sort of every single moment of the game. So uh, mind game model, uh, when we're in the tag, maintain possession. I want my players to maintain possession with diamonds or triangles, for example. I want them to uh, receive the ball, you know, through the lines, uh, play the ball through the lines, that sort of thing. So basically, that would be the purpose of a game model. Uh, and then from that, we obviously know how we're going to achieve that philosophy, which I think probably sort of first team level for years, you know, in football, that was probably something that was missing. Uh, you know, you might argue completely different. That, that's probably what I felt. Uh, that, that, that's the purpose of the game model from that regard. And then it obviously presents us with a annual curriculum. So uh, you know, from that sort of tactical decision of, you know, I'll go again and how we're maintaining possession. So my decision of uh, diamonds and triangles, that then becomes the focus of our session. 
So for one of our micro sessions, we'll work on diamonds and triangles and that we, we, we fill that with, you know, populate that with activities. Um, you know, again, if it's sort of uh, thinking about, you know, how I want my team to uh, play my philosophy, you know, out of possession, that might be something like, OK, we've got to build defensive lines immediately, you know, from losing the ball. We'll work on that in a session. So essentially, that's what it's there for. And I, you know, again, you might argue differently but you know when I sort of first came through coaching a lot of my sessions were well what should we work on tonight oh we struggled at this at the weekend you know we might work on passing or we might work on shooting but it was never really informed by a sort of idea behind it as like so essentially that's you know my sort of conception of what a game model is for and you know lots of descriptions on that online and on my website for anyone that is interested but but yeah hope that answers your question the sports coaching podcast with sam holmshaw yeah so to um it it does answer my question i think it alludes to some really interesting points because i think from my experience um i've had to work around a curriculum for a long period of time so it does naturally have a tactical periodization within it um, but I've seen that evolve over the last 10 years in terms of, you know, the content of it, how we structure the weeks. Uh, and I've seen different models. I've had Ben Bartlett um, have discussions with him, who's obviously great around constraints-based coaching. I definitely recommend people to go and um, see his work if they haven't. And one of the things he highlighted was in a week or in a couple of weeks is maybe to spend two weeks on a topic and then flip it for the last one. And then when you come, you work on almost six blocks and then you flip it the other way. So if you can imagine if we're working for two, uh, three week periods, we're going to do playing out of the back for two weeks um, in, in different formats. The last week we'll be pressing from the front. Then we'll go through the different phases. And then when we return to the playing out from the back segment, the next time might be a week long playing out from the back, two weeks pressing. Um, and you can work from that. So I think um, from my experience, obviously going through the tactical curriculum etc it's been really really interesting but i i have also seen and i know it does happen quite a lot like you've mentioned there is go oh, well what did we struggle with at the weekend and kind of uh, uh, work around that and um you kind of feel like you're chasing your tail a little bit because there's always something to improve on where there's actually no structure to it mm. um i guess the thing for you uh, from you and your experiences with it how far down the pyramid can you go with it so if you're looking at uh, age groups wise how how low down or high how high up can you drip feed that tactical periodization in and what would that look like at the different age groups i would argue that you can actually use it all the way through and a lot of people would probably disagree with me with that because they would say well actually though when we're in working with the under fives we've got to teach them the techniques uh, you know actually when we're in the under eights we've got to teach them the techniques um, you know under 15s difficult time sort of going through your know, boys testosterone uh, girls menstrual cycle we, we've got to do some form of psychological training and i agree with all of that but i think what a lot of coaches probably are just beginning to kind of understand with this tactical periodization element that again sort of going Back to uh, you know what Victor Frada talks about. All those elements are from the stemmed from the tactical. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of stuff that may be going on at home and stuff that we can include. But generally, you know, if you're trying to work on a tactical decision, they are those four other elements come within that. And obviously, there's there's loads of different skills and traits that are required for that particular uh, skill as well. So, 
you know, in terms of if we just move on to the game model for a second, uh, yes, it can, in my opinion, be used for under fives, but obviously that would look really differently. And that's probably a misconception when I see a lot of these game models on Twitter that, you know, they've, they've took Borussia Dortmund's or Ajax's first team model and then take that into the under eights. That, that's actually a massive, massive misconception and actually can be quite dangerous because if we're expecting a, you know, an eight-year-old boy or eight-year-old girl to perform that first team tactical decision, well, there's no way they're going to be able to do it. Because at first team level, professional, elite level of sport, you know, 10, 20 years old or whatever, the eight year old won't be able to do it, you know, tactically, uh, technically, physically, psychologically. The decision has to be contextualized. So, you know, I think about uh, one of the early game models I did was actually for an under sevens team. It was very simple. It was just, you know, things like maintain possession element. The sort of principle was just find space, for example. Or, you know, in the sort of the attempt to score element, the principle was just, you know, try and get into the the final third and, you know, be creative. And I think that's, you know, sort of a big thing to mention with these models. They have to be relative to the context. They have to be relative to the age and stage of who you're working with. And even deeper than that, you know, are they there? Are the academy players, are they players that have just got into football for the first time? Uh, and, and that's something that we really have to be aware of here. But going back to the sort of periodization element, I think... You know, how I sort of use mine at, at first team level now is, you know, everything we do is tactical, but that doesn't mean that we disregard the other elements. So, you know, for example, if I've got a player that's really struggling, you know, to pass the ball, then we might add a little rule in that sort of small sided game where for her, it's got to be two touch passing or she might be the, the joker player or the neutral players, I would call it. And the idea is, is that even though she's still in that sort of tactical active decision making practice, she's going to be past the ball a lot more. So it's trying to promote her passing ability, give her more opportunities to receive and pass the ball. Uh, likewise, the, the one I use for social is communication. So if we've got a player who we think, you know, first off, he's confident enough to talk in front of the team, but maybe he's lacking in communication, we might say, OK, you're the only player that can talk. And then that, well, from what I've seen in my experience, does promote the player talking again through that tactical element. And obviously, you know, through the ages, that's going to look very different. Um, that would be how I use it at a first team level. But for me, I, 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 I think it's beneficial, you know, all the way through. I think a, a big thing sort of within youth development, obviously, is the time you get. I mean, even with us now at first team, we only get one training session a week. But at youth development, where everything is actually development over winning, uh, actually, for me, sort of being in that tactical practice, that active decision-making practice, whilst learning the other holistic areas that come with that, if you can add in a little rule that manipulates those other areas and promotes them even further, then that can be really beneficial. And you're not missing out on that decision-making element, but you're still doing the, the other elements too. So, yeah, to answer the question, yeah, I think it's about understanding what that looks like. And and that, I think there's still a lot of research going into that to, to help coaches out really, because it is a very in-depth concept that has come through first team level football. So I guess the question off the back of that, and something you would have noticed, I think everyone has, kids aren't playing out as much as they used to. Um, and I know as a kid growing up, I spent hours and hours and hours down the park playing in games, playing against older kids, smaller kids, like every shape and size. Do you think that part of the challenges around tactical periodization now come because kids maybe aren't doing as much games and stuff with their friends in the street compared to doing 
um, individualized practice or fortnight, <laughs> more likely than not. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a big problem with it as well within youth development is, for whatever reason, because of that, there's then this conception that, right, the kids are too busy playing FIFA or Fortnite, like you mentioned, or, or Call of Duty or whatever. So we've got to then focus everything on the tech, the technical skills. Now, for me, I would actually argue that because if they're not going out and playing the game at all, then for me, there's even a bigger argument to be going and playing the game in training then and, and kind of supplement that. Um, you know, again, you know, I think about when I was a kid, we'd always do you know, sort of passing against the wall, uh, practicing those those basic technical skills. And you're so right, you don't really see kids doing that anymore. And it's a massive shame, really, because I think, well, you could argue is that stopping creativity, but then you look at the England team now and you're probably thinking, well, not at all. But I would, I, I would still argue that it makes more sense to be doing that sort of tactical games-based uh, approaches within youth development. We still focus on technical as well through that. Uh, you know, I know a lot of coaches would completely disagree with me there and say, no, it's in sort of 50-50 balance importance. Uh, but I know the, the FA four-corner model, you know, would sort of differ as well and sort of say it's got to be an equal focus within the session. But for me, I think encouraging those kids to be playing football for a starter, I, I do think that the technical comes through. I think it's about how we are managing practice or manipulating practice for how much of that technical comes through. And recognising that, you know, if this small-sided game, if, if the kids are struggling with it, how do we really digress that then to then really help, you know, promote that technical practice? You know, if they're struggling to pass, how can we just manipulate that game so it's more appropriate for their age and stage? But again, I, I think a big problem with it is that it's a, a big word, tactical periodization. I think that because it's came from first team level, or, you know, professional level, Mourinho using it, that it kind of gets a reputation of, well, that's what you do at first team level. But for me, I, I think it can be really beneficial at youth team development. But again, that's really new research coming through. And, you know, hopefully in a couple of years, there might be something that, that helps support that argument. The Sports Coaching Podcast with Sam Holmshaw. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting concept because I'll be honest, I do do isolated technical practice. Um, I also do do some 1v1 type practices, which we'll go over in a minute because I think it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Um, but what it, a lot of the work we do will be based around areas of a pitch or decisions in, in, in a pitch. Um, and the moves will link to that area of the pitch. So it might be, for example, um, we're doing a 1v1 practice. The move of the week might be, everyone knows, double scissors. So we'd set up our 1v1 practice to really encourage the double scissors or single scissors. You get three points if you can do it and then scoring that goal. And then we'd start manipulating where the goals are so that if it's in wide areas this week, it would be a type of cross that's coming in rather than a shot, etc. Um, so I think one one thing we've probably got better at as as a club, and I think probably as as a um, whole coaching, is that how do we link it back to the game? So if we are doing isolated practice, how can we ensure that it does link back to back to the game? Um, and that doesn't have to be first team level. That can be an under four. What does an under four see in their game at the moment? Can we link this practice we're doing back to that game? 
um, which I think is something that, as I said, we're getting a lot better at. And I think there will continue to be aggressions out. And I think we'll we'll end up stealing from other sports in terms of how they do it. I look out in the States, I think some of the stuff they do regarding individualised plans, et cetera, and making it relevant to the game is really good. Mm. Um, so I think there's a, there's a long way to go with it. Um, but I do see improvements in terms of trying to make sure the practices we do, even if they are isolated technical practices or skill practices, they're relative to something for the boys or make it fun. Yeah. One of the one of the ones that the kids love that I set them over the summer. Really simple. You've got two cones, your end that are two yards apart. Your mum, dad, brother, sister, whoever stands 15 yards away or 20 yards away, 25 away. Same. And um, if you go, if you shoot through their one with your weaker foot, it's three points. If they shoot, through, if you shoot through with your stronger foot, it's one point. Um, and the first session, or the first thing might be you have to shoot from outside your cones. So it's working on shifting the ball across your feet. Next yeah. one might be you've got to use both feet. The next one might be you've got to through, shoot through both sets of cones. So it's a fun little game for them. But we're working on a technical practice. And I think that yeah. those types of situations where you can make, if you are doing it as individualized or as pairs, something that's fun for the kids, you're always going to get more buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't disagree with any of that, by the way. And I think that's sometimes where people sort of, you know, oh, he's, he's so invested in this approach. He can't see anything else. You know, I, would, I wouldn't die for tactical periodization in, in that sort of sense. Uh, but for me, that's that's representative practice, isn't it? Um, you know, thinking about where, we, okay, we're doing technical practice and it might be isolated, but we're actually thinking about the areas of the pitch because we know when it gets to the Sunday, that's going to click in the player's mind of what to do in that specific area. So that's representative. I think where the isolated practice traditionally uh, gets a lot of sort of negative reviews in the literature is that if you're just passing in pairs although that is developing the technical skill it's maybe not focusing on anything else so although you're going to become a better passer it's not engaged in any actual you know thoughts or sort of uh you know perception perceiving where i am you know how this sort of relates to the game whereas actually you know there's an argument for what you're saying there around okay it, it is technical practice and it's heavy on that but we're thinking about the areas of the pitch. We're linking that still to the game. And if you think through doing that, that is still a decision-making element because the player is subjected to, you know, where they are in that environment. Sort of the perception of, okay, you know, I, I recognise where I am. I recognise how this relates to the game. I think you can argue that still, you know, it, it works. And again, there's not necessarily a right or wrong key. I mean, you know, one of the uh, fundamental... Uh, so our implications, I'd say, for tactical periodization that I don't necessarily agree with is that it would suggest that all you should do is the tactical and everything else sort of filters through naturally. I actually disagree with that. I think you still have to, if you're using this game space, I do think you have to add certain uh, rules that focus on one of those holistic elements. I think it's really naive to just assume that, OK, uh, they'll get better at communication or they'll get better at leadership through doing this small-sided game. I, I don't think that works. I think you have to actually, you know, be aware of that. And that would be, you know, you know, a, an argument against tactical periodization. And 
and I guess the sort of games-based approach. But what I've started to do quite a lot in the last two or three weeks is, and probably where I'm moving away now, I am probably moving away from tactical periodization and thinking more about representative practice because for me, that's the sort of thing above, if you like tactical periodization and probably where, uh, you know, the methodology, games-based, isolated, that kind of, for me, all comes under representativeness. And I think that is a really important concept, um, you know, within any practice, really. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of work on that at the minute, and I think all the research kind of points into the direction of if, as long as your session relates to something that's going to happen in the game, that's going to be really beneficial for the player. And I think that's probably from what you've just said is where the academies are, are going now. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things, I mean, we listen, we do the isolated practice. Some of the keep up challenges that the kids can do in my end are incredible. I think the purpose for it is, particularly younger age groups, is familiarity on the ball, but also developing practice habits and developing uh, psychological outcomes. So imagine as a five-year-old, we're asking you to do keep-ups and you've got to try and get to 20 by next week and you keep dropping it on 18. That's hard. That's really hard. Like, um, and I think for, for us, one of the things we do with the practice culture is encouraging them to have resilience, encouraging them to work hard on it for those alternative outcomes. So we want them to be familiar on the ball and, you know, doing all these practice types are going to help with that. But it's also the psychological factors that I think alongside it that really, really help. Mm. Um, so, yeah, as I said, the lads are incredible, some of the stuff we do, and we will keep driving that because we want them to be good on the ball. We want to be comfortable. We want to challenge them. We can also work them really hard in those areas. But it's so that further down the line, we can then focus on this representative practice.